So tonight we are continuing in our series studying the Old Covenant, and particularly we're studying the priesthood. And last week we looked at the priestly garments, and tonight we're looking at the, the priestly ordination, which is basically a ceremony at the beginning of the um, service of the priests. And this ordination is unique because it is actually the first ordination also. It is not the case that there have been priests in previous generations, and this is describing now some subsequent ordination of a, another generation. But this is the first ordination, which is why we see that the, the altar actually has to go through a process as well. For seven days, we read in verse 37, atonement shall be made for the altar to consecrate it, and the altar shall become most holy. So this is the first one. Moses presides over this one. Remember that in this section of Exodus, the Lord is speaking to Moses. And so when he says in Exodus 29 and verse 26, you shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. The person that he is speaking to is Moses. In future ordinations, presumably not Moses, but actually the uh, ruling high priest will be the one that presides over a ceremony like this. And then the wave offering will actually be not Moses' portion then, but the, but the portion of the high priests. But since this is the first ceremony, there is some uniqueness to it. It is delineated that in future ceremonies, this portion which belongs to Moses in the first ordination shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is Exodus 29 and verse 28. So God gives rules about this first one, but then he says in the future, this is what it will be like. And so we see God setting up how the priesthood is to be consecrated in the first place, but we also see God giving rules for how the priesthood is to be, is to operate and be maintained in perpetuity. He gives rules even for succession. We see in Exodus 29 and verse 29, the holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes to minister, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. So we see that God is here anticipating future ceremonies and, and generation after generation of ordinations. So this is both a chapter that tells us about the first one, but this is also a chapter that tells us about the ongoing uh, succession of priests. What we see in this chapter, Exodus 29, is six stages of the ordination ceremony. Well, the breads, cakes, and wafers, which are mentioned in verses 2 or 3, might seem to be additional at first to the six stages. They actually accompany the ram of ordination and the, the ceremonies pertaining to the ram of ordination. And that's described for us in verses 23 to 25. So if I could outline the six stages, they would be the washing of Aaron and his sons, which is described in verse 4. 
Then the girding or the dressing of Aaron and his sons and their priestly garments, which we studied last week. This is in verses 5 to 9. There is the anointing of Aaron. And notice that it is Aaron alone who is anointed and not all of the priests. That's in verse 7. And so even though it falls within the the broader section of just the priests being dressed for their service, I list it as a separate stage or a separate step because it's unique. It's not as if all the priests were anointed. And, And obviously being anointed with oil is not exactly the same thing as getting dressed. So they're kind of commingled, but it's a separate event. Then there are three offerings. There is the bull for the sin offering in verses 10 to 14. Then there is the first ram for a burnt offering in verses 15 to 18. Then there is the second ram for an ordination offering in verses 19 to 34. Now, this helps us make sense of the chapter because we can kind of see the, the flow of what happens. Because this is the inaugural ceremony where there are no priests yet, the sacrificial system is being instituted, but it hasn't actually been implemented as yet. And so even though we've been studying the Old Covenant, remember where we are in biblical revelation. The Israelites are still at Sinai getting revelation. And so even though we've been thinking about the Old Covenant and talking about the Old Covenant, and we've been thinking about how the tabernacle was laid out and you know the various components of it and what would take place in the tabernacle none of that had actually happened as yet at the time that this was written and so this is god describing this inaugural ordination of the priests and the the implementation of the sacrificial system so basically following on the heels of receiving this revelation, the Israelites are obviously expected to act on the revelation received. And so in the beginning of Exodus 29, we read, um, take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish. Take the bread and the cakes and the wafers and put them in a basket and bring Aaron and his sons. You see that there's this, this process of gathering which is described first. As you go to implement this, get everything together, and then this is what you're going to do. And God describes the six stages of the ordination. First, dress them in their priestly garments. And as we saw last week, there's no particular order really to the way that they need to get dressed or the way that they need to store the garments. Sometimes it's listed in one order, sometimes it's listed in another. So there's there's no real significance here. Um, What I will know, however, is that the undergarments are not described, which means they're presumably to show up with the undergarments already on. So again, just to just to emphasize that point that the, the religion of the Israelites in contradistinction to the pagan nations around them was entirely non sexualized. And so there was not it wasn't. Um, the, the ceremony of clothing them wasn't in any way sexualized or didn't involve any exposure or anything like this. It was that they showed up already modestly clothed and were simply um, given the priestly garments to wear uh, in which they would be, in which they would perform the duties of the priests. Then what we see next is 
or what we see concurrent with that is that Aaron is anointed for priestly service. And notice again that it's only Aaron who is anointed, the high priest, and not the other priests. Then we come to the sin offering, which is the bowl. And part of the bowl is to be burnt up outside the camp. And the bull is to be slaughtered and its blood is to be applied to the horns of the altar. Which you remember was in the outer court of the tabernacle, right in the middle of it. And it had four protrusions, one from each corner. Most likely, uh, which were most likely to serve as basically hooks to tie down the animal. uh, So that it didn't slip uh, and move around as it was being uh, burnt up. And so the blood would be applied to the horns of the altar and the rest of the and, and and the rest of the blood would be poured out at the base of the altar some of it some of the ram or pardon me some of the bull was to be burned on the altar and some of the blood or some of the bull pardon me was to be burned outside the camp and so what we have um, is a sin offering, which we'll come to in, in greater length, but at a very basic level, we can understand that it's because of sin that this is offered. Next, we see the first ram for a burnt offering. There is this common refrain with all three of these animal sacrifices. Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head. We read that they lay their hands on the head of the bull in verse 10. And then they lay their hands on the head of the first ram in verse 15. And then when we come to the third ram, they will do that also. And this is, again, symbolizing a unity between the animal and, the, and the, those offering up the animal. That it is connected with them that this animal is so offered. Its blood is thrown against the sides of the altar. And then the entire thing is burnt up. And this is offered as a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Again, I'm not going to say too much about the different types of offerings because we're going to come to these in uh, more detail. But we can obviously understand the concept of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. We can also understand that God isn't hungry and doesn't need to be fed, right? And so the um, imagery here of a food offering is symbolic. It's not as if the people of Israel take care of their God, but there is this sense here which is presented to the Lord and as it's consumed by the fire, it's as if the Lord himself eats and enjoys and feels pleased with the aroma and with the, the food that is offered to him. And then lastly, There is the ram of ordination. And some of the blood is applied to the right ear and also to the right thumb and the right big toe on the right foot. This is obviously symbolic. Whatever the blood is doing, it's doing to a very, very small percentage of the body. And so we, we clearly see that it's 
simply a token application of blood. Um, but this is applied to the priests, to, both, to Aaron, the high priest, and his sons. And then the, this is where the bread and the cake and the wafers come in. They're waved as a food offering to the Lord. Some people think that the wave offering was literally waved. Some people think that it was hung on some kind of a pendulum and swung back and forth between the altar and the priest. Some people think that the, the word waved basically just means lifted. And so it was symbolically lifted up to the Lord. It's not crystal clear, but the whole idea here, again, is that these things are, are being offered up to the Lord. And then what we see is that the breast of the ram is Moses' portion that he is uh, able to eat. and he's, He has the opportunity to eat. The rest of the ram is to be eaten by... Aaron and his sons. We see this in verses 31 and following. And so there is this, um, the, best of, the best portion is given up to Moses, who's presiding over the whole thing. And then the rest of the animal is consumed by the priests themselves. And so there is this meal, which um, is part and parcel of this ordination ceremony. As the, the food is set apart as holy to be eaten by these men who are set apart as holy, in the morning, you don't just have leftovers casually. Whatever is left over until the morning is burnt up. This is in verse 34. And so this is kind of just walking you through at a basic level what actually happens. Douglas Stewart notes that there are basically three of these stages which are common to pretty much any of the ceremonies pertaining to the tabernacle, and, and then three which are specific to the ordination of the priests. He says that washing was a common thing that all the Israelites would have to do as part and parcel of the ceremonies, and that the priests would have to do uh, at various times. And then sin offerings and burnt offerings, again, are are common things that happen at times other than ordination. So he says those three are, are not uniquely specific to the ordination itself, but those things are just precursors. Like before anyone can, can come before God, there, have to be, there has to be washing and there has to be offerings uh, lifted up to the Lord. And then there are three things which are specific to the ordination of the priests. The girding of, of the priests in their garments, anointing Aaron with oil for his service, and then the ordination offering, which is the second ram, which is the third animal sacrifice, which we read about in verses 19 to 34. Those things are not offered in, in other ceremonies or in other parts of the sacrificial system. Those things are unique to the ordination. And uh, let's just think now about points of significance. First, we see that the priests, like the rest of the Israelites, needed 
sin offerings. That they were men who were guilty. And so atonement had to be made for them. We see that blood had to be applied to them. This is the symbolism of the blood being applied to their ear and to their hands and to their toes. That they needed to be, they needed to have their sins atoned for. For legally, they were guilty. We see in verse 21 that after sprinkling blood on the altar, Moses was to take part of the blood that was sprinkled on the altar and mix it with the anointing oil and then sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments. Stuart notes that the blood after it had been applied to the altar couldn't really be taken up again in large quantities, could it? So this was really just a symbolic... He says we're talking like probably like milliliters at most. Because once the blood had been applied to the horns of the altar, how could you take it up again? At most, you just get maybe like a little drop or something. And so it was just this symbolic token amount, which would be mixed with the oil and sprinkled upon the priests and their clothes. We know that it had to be mixed because, again, if it was such a small quantity, how could he possibly sprinkle the blood in one action and then sprinkle the oil in another action? Since it would have been such a small quantity retrieved from the horns of the altar, it had to just be that it was a symbolic amount to be mixed with the oil. So that it wouldn't be oil alone, but oil and blood, which would anoint um, the uh, clothing of the priests in verse 21. Or, sorry, I shouldn't say priests. I, I should say, well, it, it's first sprinkled on Aaron and his garments, and then only secondly on his sons and his sons' garments with him. Though the anointing that's in verse 7 is Aaron only. This sprinkling happens on Aaron and then Aaron's sons uh, with him. So it is not just oil, but it's oil and blood. Which shows the need that these men had for atonement. If it was oil alone, the priests would still have this problem of needing forgiveness. And needing atonement. The question would be raised, well, what about these men? They're sinners too. And so it couldn't just be oil symbolizing set-apartness for the work and, and symbolizing purity and cleanness, as Stuart says. It had to be blood also. But the oil and the washing does show that the priests not only had to be forgiven, but they also had to be cleansed. Let me give you an illustration which I've used before. If somebody literally physically killed another person and literally had blood on their hands, there are two things that would need to happen in God's eyes. One is he would have a, a guilty legal record that would need to be forgiven. The other is he would still literally have blood on his hands. And so God might forgive a person, hypothetically, for the murder. And yet the person would still have physical blood on their hands if they had not washed. Conversely, 
if the person washed and no longer physically had blood on their hands, but wasn't forgiven by God, then legally they would still have blood on their hands in God's eyes, so to speak. I think when we think about it like this, that there's this legal aspect, but then there's also this washing that needs to take place. You need to get the blood off your hands literally and legally. And so both happen here. The priests wash and atonement is made for the priests. And so they're symbolically cleansed of their sins, even as at the same time they're forgiven for their sins. And then there is this anointing with oil on the head of Aaron, and then this sprinkling with oil, which, as, as Douglas Stewart says, in the logic of the Old Testament's sacrificial system, oil helps signify purity and cleanness. And it also, I would note, symbolizes being set apart. That kings were anointed for their work. Priests were anointed for their work. And so there is this set-apartness, this purity, this cleanliness that is symbolized by the oil. Note also in this passage that the inanimate objects needed purification. This is interesting because, of course, an altar can't sin, nor can clothes sin. But we see that symbolically God needed to make both the altar and the clothes that the priests wore fit for His worship. And so... We see in verses 16 and 36 that atonement is made for the altar and that the altar is purified. We see in verse 21 that oil and blood are sprinkled not only on Aaron but also his garments and not only his sons but also his son's garments. And we know that that is not just It doesn't just say Aaron and his garments and his son and his garments by way of just describing the mechanics of it. But we know that there's also symbolism latent in that because it says he and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his son's garments with him. And so there's actually this symbolic significance to to the oil and the blood being sprinkled on the garments. And that by virtue of this ceremony, the garments themselves, as well as the people, will become holy. I read something this week that I I thought was fascinating that I would share with you. You may recall that after Aaron and his sons were ordained, at some point Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. This is in Leviticus chapter 10. And then what happens? And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Now, this is what is really interesting. In verse 5 of Leviticus 10, we read this. Or well, in verse 4 and 5, we read this. Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Aziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. This is Nadab and Abihu, the dead sons of Aaron. 
And Leviticus 10 and verse 5 says this, So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. In the Hebrew, apparently, it's also possible that it said they carried them by their coats. What is significant about this is that if fire came out from the Lord and consumed them, how could you even grab their coats? How could they even still be wearing coats? What's really interesting is that it seems that the fire of the Lord, which was clearly a supernatural fire, consumed the priests, but not the coats that they were wearing. The symbolism of which is quite rich, that these men had defiled themselves by their act of presumption in the Lord's worship. And yet God still regarded the garments themselves as holy and spared the garments. Fascinating. In any case, what we, what we see going back to Exodus 29, what we see is that symbolically God makes even the inanimate objects uh, fit for His worship, symbolically purifying them and symbolically making them holy, setting them apart for a separate use. That it's not, the altar is no longer going to be just a piece of metal. And the garments are not going to be any longer just, just a piece of fabric. But these are going to be set apart for the use of God. Now, as we come to think again about the um, typology of this, we, we think about Christ and we think about ourselves. Christ... Our high priest needs no cleansing. The fact that Aaron had to be cleansed shows his inferiority to Christ Jesus who needs no cleansing. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 we read this. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful High priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. If we just read that, we might say, so was he made a sinner? Because it says that he was made like his brothers in every respect. But Hebrews 4 reiterates the same point but makes explicit the fact that he was not a sinner. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so we see the inferiority of Aaron compared to Christ, who is a high priest who would not need to have blood applied to his right earlobe or to his right thumb or to his, the big toe of his right foot. We see Jesus, the high priest, as one who would not need to have oil mixed with blood sprinkled on him and upon his garments. After all, whose blood would you sprinkle Christ Jesus with in order to purify him? You see, the superiority of Christ is that he needs no oil mixed with blood. Just oil. No one appoints themselves as a priest, 
but they serve when they are appointed by God, the author of Hebrews tells us. And Hebrews emphasizes the point that God has appointed our Lord Jesus Christ to be our high priest. And so there is oil, but there is no mixture of blood in the anointing of Christ Jesus for this work. It symbolizes His, his purity, His cleanliness, His set-apartness for the work. But there is no need to sprinkle Christ Jesus. This speaks to His superiority over Aaron. We, ourselves, though we are called priests, we are never called high priests. So this is a development of the idea that we introduced a couple of weeks ago, where there is some uniqueness to Christ's priestly work, but there is also a sense in which we share in His priestly work. We can develop that concept by articulating it like this. Christ is the high priest. It's, it's really His service and His work. We cooperate with Him and collaborate with Him to some extent in His work. But there is uniqueness to His role as high priest. Just like we might say the work of the priests in the tabernacle of old was Aaron's work. That would be a natural and appropriate way of speaking. That the priests in the tabernacle really did Aaron's work. So the priests in the new covenant do Christ's work. But it is, there is uniqueness to Aaron under the old covenant and there is uniqueness to Christ in the new covenant. It is not the average and ordinary priest who go in on the Day of Atonement, recorded for us in Leviticus 16, which I preached on months ago, to offer up atonement for the people once a year. It is the High Priest, and He alone who goes and does that solemn act. Likewise, it is Christ who alone goes into the Most Holy Place and makes atonement for us. And so we preserve Christ's uniqueness, and yet we also capture this aspect of, of sharing in His work and being made priests ourselves, if we articulate it like this, that we are priests in the worship of God and in, in, with respect to an intercessory role facing a lost world, that we bring them before God and we bring God before them, that there is intercession, that there is Access that we enjoy to go into God's presence as the priests of old enjoyed privilege to go into God's presence. So we as priests enjoy privileged access and we bear a stewardship to represent the people to God and God to the people. But there is uniqueness to Christ, our high priest, who alone makes atonement for the people. So the uniqueness of Aaron's ordination speaks to us of the uniqueness of Christ. The oil mixed with blood speaks to us of Aaron's inferiority. 
and implicitly of Christ's superiority to him. Certainly, the oil mixed with blood applies to us as well. That not only do we need to be set apart by the oil, but we also need to be atoned for by the blood. We uh, can understand this quite intuitively as we, we confess regularly and we see from every passage of Scripture that we are, unlike Christ Jesus, sinners. He has been tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. We are tempted and we sin. And so we see certainly that there is this need of both oil and blood. And we recognize that Christ has, as our great high priest, ordained us to his service, sprinkling us with oil and blood, as it were, calling us to live set-apart lives, giving us the privileged access of priests, and at the same time, sprinkling us with his blood to atone for our sins. As the priests had to wash regularly, going from the outer court into the holy place and back again, had to wash their hands and their feet, so likewise we need this regular daily cleansing. But in the beginning, when Christ ordained us to his service, anointed us with oil and blood, in the beginning we were washed one time from head to toe as the priests here were washed definitively at the beginning of their ordination. It didn't render all subsequent washings unnecessary, but neither did they have to wash from head to toe on a regular basis, ceremonially speaking. Like we saw uh, when we considered the uh, basin in which they washed a couple of months ago, it correlates to the foot washing narrative in John chapter 13, where Jesus says, he who, is clean, he who has bathed does not basically need to bathe over and over again, but you do need to wash your dusty feet. Likewise, we see that these men were washed definitively at their ordination. And likewise, we have been washed definitively at our ordination. So we still stop at the bronze basin as it were, on a daily basis. We still have our feet washed from the dusty paths that we walk on a regular basis. But when Christ called us into His service, we were washed. We were sprinkled with oil and blood, set apart for His service, and our sins were atoned for, and now we are priests unto God. What is the end goal of all of this? Exodus Chapter 29 and verse 45. In Exodus 29 and verse 45, God says this, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. The goal of God's provision of priests, not just in this generation uh, described in Exodus 29, but in subsequent generations. Remember that it anticipates priests to serve after Aaron, sons who will succeed him. The goal of this institution of the priesthood and of the tabernacle and of the sacrificial system is that God can justly condescend to live in a camp of sinners and that God can dwell among them and be their God and that they will be His people and that they could actually have access to approach Him and that um, they could be called His own. Revelation 21 and verse 3 sees this purpose brought to its complete fulfillment. 
I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We know that only in a limited sense, through the old covenant priesthood, would God dwell with his people and be their God. There was still this restricted access for the common Israelite. There was this inferiority to the manner in which God dwelt with them of old. But we see in the, the better priesthood in which Christ is superior to Aaron. And the, the fulfillment of what, everything that this priesthood pointed to. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of Christ that takes away sin. And God making each and every one of His people priests as we saw a couple of weeks ago, we see the superiority of what is pictured in Exodus 29 in Christ and in His work and in His ordination of all of us to be His priests and in the tearing of the veil that kept God's people out of the most holy place and away from His unrestricted, unfettered presence. We see in the things which pertain to Christ and His priesthood greater blessedness, greater superiority, and that in a more powerful way through the work of Christ, the high priest. This original purpose articulated in Exodus 29 is brought to fulfillment in Revelation 21. The dwelling place of God being with man and us being God's people and God being our God. And so... I hope that this has been informative to you with respect to the ordination of the priests. I hope it also has provided you with some food for thought, stuff to meditate on as we think about the correlation of the Old Covenant priesthood to the things of Christ and to His priesthood. Let us worship Christ Jesus, our great High Priest, and let us also recognize this call, this stewardship that we have to be priests unto God, a set-apart holy people sprinkled with oil and blood to be in the service of Christ, having been washed to daily be involved in the worship of God and in the intercession for those who are not priests, those outside the tabernacle precinct, so to speak, um, as we recognize that we have an intercessory role with respect to the lost world. Let us meditate soberly on that and let us sing together in response a prayer of consecration. Oh great God, it's number 35, I believe, if anyone is following along in hymns of prayer.